this podcast, Michael DeSantis talks to Lindsay Goff, the Chief Executive Officer at the Women's and Children's Health Network. Lindsay, what was your first job out of university? So I went to university as a, a sponsored student with a regional health authority in the UK. So I left the university with my biomedical science degree and went straight into pathology laboratory working as a what was then called a medical laboratory scientific officer in the histopathology lab. Okay. Histopathology meaning what certain area for, for those that are... Um, pathology has four main specialties with a number of subspecialties, but the main specialties are histopathology, or in Australia it's known as anatomical pathology, biochemistry, hematology, and microbiology, yeah. virology. And anatomical pathology, I guess, in a... a a few words, is where somebody's maybe had an operation and had something removed. The anatomical pathology lab will test it um, to diagnose what's wrong with that person. So it might be a malignancy or it might be another disease, but the anatomical pathology lab will work with the piece of human tissue to diagnose what's wrong with the person. What was it that led you down that career path or to take that kind of career option in such a kind of, I guess, specialist field? I think at school I was always, my big interest was always biology. And so I knew okay. I wanted to do something down that route. Um, I thought about various options, but then became aware of this pathway where if successful, an individual was sponsored by a regional health authority, which meant you spent six months at uni doing student work and six months in a hospital working in the pathology laboratories and you rotated around all the laboratories and then got to choose the, your preference and then specialise in your preference. Okay. And that was something that just appealed to me, and I was lucky enough to be able to um, to get that opportunity. Taking that career option, how do you feel as though it shaped your future career path? Obviously, health aside, what led you to kind of take that next career option um, and I guess then make the move over to, the, to Australia? So firstly, um, obviously, when I first worked in the lab, it was about building my experience and expertise in the laboratory. But then in the UK, there is a, a secondary qualification that you need to achieve called the Fellowship of the Institute of Biomedical Sciences, which is a master's equivalent um, qualification. And you have to achieve that to actually progress into the managerial positions in pathology. And I successfully got that. And so I managed to get on the ladder in management positions. And it just so happened I seemed to be quite good at it and I enjoyed it. <laughs> so I ended, I ended up running the histopathology laboratory, the cytology laboratory and the, um, the mortuary and then went into managing all the whole of the pathology laboratory, so all of the labs, and then went into, made the move into mainstream hospital management and did management jobs in uh, medicine, in surgery, in diagnostic, other diagnostic areas, and um, ultimately ended up at the University Hospitals Coventry in Warwickshire as a director of operations in one of the big divisions. So it's a very large hospital similar to the RA. So there were three directors of operations and I was, I was there for five years and then became aware of an opportunity in Adelaide and that was through connections I have, still have here with ex-colleagues or ex-CEOs that I'd worked to in the UK who came over here for very senior roles, man uh, managing departments of health in various jurisdictions. And... Um, I spoke to those, and so I did put my hat into the ring, and I was successful. So I came over here in January 2009 to work at the Royal Adelaide Hospital. 
Making that move, and obviously a few years in now to your career in Australia, what do you see as the biggest differences that you found working in the healthcare sector in Australia versus, or I guess in comparison to the United Kingdom? For me, the biggest difference is the primary care system and the general practice system. So in the UK, GPs are um, employed by the National Health Service and not private practitioners. And the primary care setup or the primary care organisations have joint accountability with the acute sector in delivering um, the public health requirements. So I guess the KPIs that we've got here, the primary care system is jointly accountable with the acute care system. So coming here and having the GPs as firmly private care providers, and actually they don't really have an accountability or responsibility in delivering those things, that was a very big difference for me. I think that was the main difference, and it took a while to get used to that. Yeah, how do you see that um, from, I guess, from the perspective of having an impact on, on health provision and obviously the, the patient services that are available and, I guess, at the end of the day, the health of society, how, how do you see those dynamics playing and where do you see, the, I guess, the benefits and the deficits in, in having those two different types of dynamics? I suppose in the UK, if you want to go and see a GP, everything is in the, health, the National Health Service. So you don't go to a GP and pay a gap to see a GP and you don't go and see a specialist and pay a gap to see a specialist. It's all part of the NHS. Now, yes, you do have a deduction from your salary, but you have that from day one. So you never see that. Um, so the perception is that it's free at the point of care. So you don't have to pay any extra. Um, I guess here there is a public health system and a private health system. And if you can't afford private health care, then you have no choice but to go public. However, what I will say about the system here is I think the time to get to see a specialist, if, uh, for example, if you're diagnosed with a cancer, the time from seeing your GP to getting your tests, the results and getting treatment is very, very quick. I think it's an excellent service. I think the care and the, the speed at which you get managed and dealt with if you are diagnosed with something very serious is exceptionally good here. And... Although it's good in the UK, I'm not quite sure you, you get seen as quickly as you do here. Okay. It's very interesting to hear. Um, from your perspective, how important is it to ensure that you're an engaging and, uh, I guess, uh, senior leader? And how important is it is engaging and managing stakeholders to be effective as a leader? So I guess um, in health, when you're in a position like this, you've got a large number of stakeholders. I mean, the, the first one, obviously, consumers and their families, your mm -hmm. staff you know, your Department of Health or your Ministry of Health, wherever you're working, politicians, um, other external stakeholders. It's really important to engage and manage your stakeholders. I don't think that you can actually run an organisation and not be uh, very communicative and engage everybody that needs to be involved. Here at Women's and Children's, we have a very, very strong consumer engagement um, arrangement. We have a, a consumer engagement strategy and framework we have a director of consumer engagement. We have consumers that sit on our tier one, that's our highest level committees, mm -hmm. and consumers sit on divisional committees too. And we also have a board committee um, as well as our finance board committee and our clinical governance board committee. We have a consumer engagement board committee that the board chair actually chairs. So we do take our consumer engagement very seriously and we actually do really well with it. So our consumers inform development of policies, they, they inform service changes and they have input into all sorts of things like that. Clearly, 
communication with staff is is vital, especially like us when you're going through things like um, a new hospital bill, when you're going through the implementation of a new AMR. So it's vital that we um, communicate with our uh, staff. And so at the moment we've got bi uh, biweekly uh, medical staff meetings. We've got fortnightly all staff forums. We have a, a weekly midweek wrap up with all sorts of communication in it. And we have a CEO communicating on a Friday and that has got all sorts of information in it, but it's also got a video of me with various members of staff. The last week it was it was in Children's Hospital Foundation because it was a party week. So we had a bit of a, a focus on, on that. Um, the week before I've, I've been meeting with the kitchen and the kitchen manager and their staff, or I'll go up to one of the wards and meet with their staff. So I do that on a weekly basis as well. And then I will regularly walk the wall. So I think I've done 62 random walk-arounds since the beginning of the year. So I, you know, I just, I'll, I'll just, if I've got an hour in the diary, I'll just head into the hospital and just go somewhere. And obviously the relationships with the, the department and the politicians and all of the other stakeholders, the other LHNs, are really important, especially in a state that's fairly small, like South Australia, as we have to make sure that we are not unnecessarily duplicating things. You know, we are quite small and we have a large number of um, local health networks and so we have to work closer together to make sure we're consistent and standardising in, in terms of what we do. Um, the topic of diversity is obviously becoming a, a prominent theme um, and as it should um, through a number of companies and boards. How have you seen the companies and boards that you are working with evolve, evolve and manage these issues? So our board is um, has a very high focus on diversity and on representation and a focus on diversity. Mm -hmm. uh, we have two Aboriginal board members, which is really good. We're the only LHN to have two Aboriginal board members, so I'm really pleased with that. We've also got a focus on culturally and linguistically diverse population that we have here in South Australia and also our disability clients. We're very obviously focused on the representation. We are also focused on making sure that we have plans to ensure that our organisation is respectful, um, it's safe, or they, that those, um, those groups feel safe to enter the organisation, and that we are doing things to actively support those groups. So we have an Aboriginal, an Aboriginal plan and strategy. We have a workforce plan for Aboriginal staff. We have a plan to ensure that we have interpreters and documentation interpreted into different languages for our culturally and linguistically diverse population. And we're just about to launch a disability inclusion plan as well. So we're working, we work and are working very hard on making sure that those populations are, are feeling safe and feeling supported when they enter our organisation. And clearly we have a great opportunity with um, the current work that we're doing around the planning for the new hospital, in factoring yeah. all of these things in for the new hospital as well. So we have a consumer, a consumer group, um, an Aboriginal group and a cons an extra consumer group for the new hospital that has representation from these from these um, cohorts of the population on it as well so we are working very hard and it is really important that we manage and have things in place for all of our population not just the largest part of the population when you're recruiting for a senior executive to join your team um, what are those key attributes you look for in a person aside from the more technical skills and experience for me, the three things that come to mind when you ask me that are relationship skills. To be an executive, I think you have to build those relationships and be able to talk to people easily on a one-on-one, -on -one, one -on -one, be open, be honest, be yourself. Good communication skills. I think it's vital as an executive that you have to be able to communicate and you need to be a team player. 
as an executive, you have to be able to work as part of the executive team, but also work as part of a, of a clinical team or any other management team that you might be working with on a day-to-day -day basis. So I think those are the three key things, somebody that can build relationships, somebody that can communicate, and somebody that can, can lead a team but can be a team player. Lindsay, obviously in terms of working with C-Centric Group in the past, you're unique in that you've been both a candidate and, and a client. Um, uh -huh. What has your experience been like with, with our organisation at C-Centric Group here? So as a candidate, what was really good was the, the, the regular communication and updates, the, inf the extensive information to enable you to prepare for an interview for the role or even to apply for the role, um, the structure in place so that you know exactly what's happening, when it's happening, how it's happening and you know when to expect some communication as somebody's recruiting to a role i think what impressed me the most is the really the weekly updates where you know you're provided with the list of applicants what you think you know who you've ruled out who you've kept in why the conversation around do we think anything different and the fact that you really do keep us updated very very regularly with lots and lots of detailed information so that we are really confident that um you are doing the very best for the organisation. Well, very, very pleased to hear. And it's obviously, from our perspective, something that we'd like to, to make sure that there is that transparency from every angle, um, I guess, through the process so we can get a good result for both yourself and the candidates and everyone can kind of come away with it with a very positive impression about what's occurred. And, and obviously, that open, honest approach is, is, tested, is um, uh, paramount in that, in that sort yeah. of approach from a perspective. Yeah. Last question for yourself, and that is, um, what are your top tips for aspiring leaders? Be yourself. Don't pretend to be something that you're not. Show your personality. You know, don't don't think that if you're in a very senior role, you know, if you are in a very senior role, people do tend to see you differently. You don't see yourself differently, but people do tend to see you differently, yeah. which is why it's important to be normal and be yourself. Be open and honest. You know, clearly there's going to be situations where you have to be confidential, but be open and honest with the information that you're sharing. Don't pretend to know all of the answers. You'll never know all of the answers. And if you don't know, say you don't know and have a conversation about it and ask people for their advice. Say, what do you think? You know, it's, it's not, if you're a CEO, it doesn't mean A, you know all the answers or B, that you're right. So ask, you know, if you're talking to a clinician who says, you know, I think I need something and you say to them, well, I actually don't know whether you do or you don't. Let's have a conversation about that. What do you think? What's your advice? Or even, you know, if you've got an issue where you've got problems in some areas, go, go and meet with some of the staff and say, I'd like your advice because, you know, I know what I think, but your advice will actually inform, inform a good decision. So I think be yourself, be open, be honest. Don't think you know all the answers and ask for advice. Perfect. Lindy, really do appreciate your time and your insights today. Uh, thank You're you so welcome. much. You're welcome.